Amen. Take your Bibles. Turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts today, Acts chapter 20. We're going to begin in verse 17. We're going to read through verse 24. Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 24. That's a powerful song, amen? A tremendous message. His life for mine. Well, it's a real appropriate song considering the message. It's interesting. The message was... Uh, ready to go this morning, and uh, just a few minutes ago, I kind of felt a direction change. It's the same message, at least title-wise, but it's really kind of a whole different direction. And boy, that that song right there, just right on, right on, spot on, amazing, amazing. All right, Acts chapter twenty. Let's begin reading in verse seventeen, and we'll read through verse twenty-four. And from Miletus. He sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. When they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews, <clears throat> and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have shewed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the spirit into Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. <coughs> now you'll notice here it says, in that last verse it says, but none of these things move me. Boy, I like that statement. None of these things move me. In verse 17, we note that this city called Miletus. And Miletus was a city that was of considerable size. It, it was of considerable importance, actually. Ephesus was about 30 miles from that particular city. And at this point, we see Paul summoning or asking for the Ephesian elders to meet him now in Miletus. Paul had been in Ephesus already. Paul had been there and preached the gospel. Paul had even uh, uh, assembled a ministry in a church there, so to speak, and Paul had seen it, it begin to take root and grow. And the fact is, is that Paul found himself being chased out of the city. Their goddess is Diana. 
And one of the coppersmiths did not appreciate the fact that so many people over the last two and a half years were being saved and turning away from idols to the living God. He got the city in an uproar and he kind of did that by going to the other tradesmen and saying, listen, if we don't do something now, this apostle Paul who's preaching a resurrected Christ is going to turn everybody away from Diana. And ultimately, we'll not be in business anymore because we're making idols and they're buying our idols. And if they don't buy them, we don't have a living. So they got pretty upset with the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says, listen, I'm going to send to Ephesus and have the elders meet me here in Miletus. Not only will I save a trip there and back, but I'll also possibly avoid another riot. In verses 18 and 19, he had ministered there, the Bible tells us, for basically two and a half years. The first three months in Ephesus, he had been in the synagogue. His life was an open book. And now he challenges the Ephesian elders to examine that book. He had set an example of lowly service, humble service. He had never been haughty. He had never been proud. He had never lorded over them. He had taken a very humble place even though we know he to be one of the greatest preachers and the greatest Christians of all time. He had demonstrated before them the mind of Christ. And we see that mind of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 in verses 5 and 8. And let me just summarize it by saying, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say, who humbled himself. If there's an area in our lives today, that we need to address and deal with as believers in the church in America. It is humility. And the Apostle Paul, a tremendous example of it, speaks to the Ephesian elders here and says, please come to me. And he begins to say to them, you know what I'm about. You know what I have done. You know how I've served. Matter of fact, he goes on to say to them, I've set a godly example I mean a godly example. You've seen my frequent tears. I wept over your sins. I wept over your sadness. I went forth weeping and bearing precious seed. His record spoke for itself. And no amount of persecution could sidetrack the Apostle Paul. No amount of persecution could derail his efforts and his determination to reach the world with the gospel. He says to them, ye know, in verses 18 and 19, ye know, he told the elders, you know what I'm about. You know how I've lived. You know how I've served. You know how I've ministered. You know how I cried and I beg God for your souls. Verses 20 through 21, we notice an expression. He says, notice it says he kept back nothing. He kept back nothing. That word kept back, that phrase, that expression comes from Luke's, I think it comes from Luke's medical vocabulary. It's a word, hupostello. And it's used basically referring to withholding food from patients. Paul never did that. He never withheld the food needed 
He never withheld what was necessary for the sinner. He always gave it to them. He always made sure they got a full dose. He made sure he fed them and he spread a full table. He set before them the whole counsel of God. He never hesitated to set before them the food that, well, that he even thought possibly could cause them to be upset or that might anger them or that might cause them to think that he's just being mean or nasty. No, he's going to give them what they need because the truth is whether or not medicine tastes good, medicine heals and helps. And may I say that the Apostle Paul didn't withhold the food of the gospel and the food of the word of God. No, he gave it to him. And even if it wasn't palatable, even if it didn't taste good at the time, he said, I got to give it to you because I love you and I want to see you prosper. If that does that one more time, I'm going to take that mic back there, okay? He said, I have showed you and I have taught you. Verses 20 and 21, he said, I have showed you, showed you and have taught you. What he's saying is, is that my life and my lip, this thing's just... There we go. He's saying basically my life and my lip, I have lived my life and I have shared my life in a, a way that's positive and, 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 and I've shared example and exposition. Everything the Apostle Paul did, he was a living epistle. He was known and he was read by all men. What was his method? Well, he tells us what his method was there in the passage 20 and 21. He says publicly and from house to house. He taught them publicly first in the synagogue. And then we find him going to the school of Tyrannus. And there he would teach and he would preach and he would share the truth. He taught them privately going door to door even. The matter of fact, from house to house he says. By the way, there was not a house in Ephesus I believe that he did not visit. His method was extremely simple. It was not complicated. Go where the people are. Don't expect them to come to you. See, every person in the Apostle Paul's eyes was a mission field. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl was someone that needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had no respect of persons. He regarded no color or creed. He simply gave the gospel to everyone. And he preached a very simple message. Repentance to God. Repentance toward God. On this side we have the world and works. The world and works. And as we are born into this life, we live our lives accustomed to and understanding of the world and works. We understand that. We know you get nothing free in life. We understand if you want something, you must work for it. We realize that, that the world itself is, is, has its own plan, its own way, its own devices to get to heaven or to somehow earn righteousness or favor even with God. We see it in religion all the time, don't we? 
I mean, religion after religion after religion saying, listen, you've got to live a good life. You've got to be a good person or you'll never get to heaven. Your good has to outweigh your bad. Well, if it were only that simple, but if it were that simple, we would simply be lost. Because, see, it's not just what we do out here, it's what we do in here that God is accounting as well. So we have the world and works. On the other side, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And this Jesus, he came to earth. He lived a sinless, perfect life. He died on a cross, and he was buried and rose again the third day. Why? Because he was the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. He was the only one that ever lived a sinless, perfect life. He was God manifest in the flesh, and he himself provided the payment necessary for sin and mankind. He, the Bible says, is the propitiation for sin. He being the only one that can fulfill the righteous demand of a holy God. On one hand, we have the world and works. And on the other hand, we have Jesus Christ. The Ephesians there in Ephesus were were pointing in the direction of the world and works. They were worshiping their idols. They were doing things they believed would earn them favor with their gods. They believed that the world was enough. They believed that their religion was enough. They believed that it was okay if I just lived a good enough life. Somehow I'd make it. But Paul preached a different message. He preached the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He preached that Christ alone could save, that Jesus died on a cross to pay for the sins of mankind. And he said, listen, if you're going to do anything, if you want to reach heaven, if you want to meet with God the Father, if you truly want to be saved forever, and live forever in a place called heaven. You've got to repent from the world and works toward and to Jesus Christ. You can't keep going this direction. You've got to repent and go the opposite toward him and to him. He's the only way, the only truth, the only life. And that's the simple message that Paul the Apostle preached. Real simple. Real simple. It was to the point, for sure. Repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of the Lord. And everybody he came into contact with was somebody that he tried to reach with the gospel. Verse 22, we see that Paul had a desire to go to Jerusalem before. He wanted to go there, but he was not permitted to go. Now he was going to Jerusalem. But he was going bound in the Spirit. Not only was he firmly resolved to go, but he was under a a kind of spiritual constraint to go. It was as if he had to go. It wasn't he had no choice in a sense. He felt the Holy Spirit of God directing him and leading him and moving him there. And he had the authority now of the Holy Spirit. In verse 23, he goes on to tell us that he knew that he was in for a rough time in Jerusalem. It wasn't going to be easy. See, the Holy Spirit made that clear to him. He had expressed that to him. He would be arrested. He would be afflicted if he went to Jerusalem. And he already knew that now. 
He knew in his innermost being, and he knew it from God. And yet, the Apostle Paul was determined to go. He still was determined to go. See, Paul would have another 10 years of ministry before Nero would finally end his life. But due to his resolve to go to Jerusalem, much of his remaining time would be spent in prison. I don't know about you, but if I had 10 more years to live, I don't think I'd want to live it in prison. And yet the Apostle Paul was unquestionably obedient to the Lord. He knew that when he went to Jerusalem, he would face opposition. He knew that it would cost him his liberty or freedom, yes, but possibly his life. And it did, both. But see, Paul, he looked at life from a higher plane. He saw things differently than most of us do. Self-preservation was not very high on his list. He was prepared to lose that liberty. He was prepared to lose his life for the cause of Christ. He said, none of these things move me. None of these things move me. It wasn't, he wasn't afraid of fate or he wasn't concerned for his life. He wasn't concerned for his, his freedom. That wasn't what his, most, his greatest concern was. His greatest desire, the Apostle Paul's, was to reach the world, was to reach those lost, to honor his Lord and his Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what mattered most to him. None of these things move me. I'm headed to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit of God is moving me. And if God tells me to go, I'm going. I don't care if I lose my freedom. I don't care if I end up in prison. I don't care if I'm beaten. I don't care if I lose my life. The fact is, they don't move me. That does not move me. What moves me is God himself. He moves me. When writing to the Romans, he referred to himself, quote, as a sheep for the slaughter. In Romans chapter 8, verse 36. Well, what an image that carries, huh? A sheep for the slaughter. The important thing to Paul was to fulfill the ministry that was entrusted to him. To bear the, the, a universal witness in his life or even in death. To carry the gospel to both Jew and Gentile. To share the good news of the grace of God to a world that was lost and headed to hell. So what moved the Apostle Paul? What moved him? I want you to take your Bible, if you would, and look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. What moved him? He said, none of these things move me. Fear for my life, fear for my liberty, fear for my comfort, fear for my... My, 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 my future, I'm not worried about all of that. Those things don't move me. They don't direct me. They don't lead me. They don't guide me. What moved the Apostle Paul? What caused him to be the man of God he was? What caused him to accomplish what he did? What enabled him to do what he did on behalf of the Lord? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. Watch it carefully now. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. 
I want you to notice a simple phrase. For the love of Christ. For the love of Christ. For the love of Christ. He said, that's what constrains me. That's what withholds me back. That's what moves me forward. That's what guides and directs me. It's the love of Christ. Hold on. I want you to notice the phrasing again. The love of Christ. He doesn't say my love for Christ. He says the love of Christ constraineth me. There's the Apostle Paul headed to Jerusalem. There he awaits men and women who will seek his head. Those that want to see his message squelched. Those who want to hear his voice no longer. Those who would prefer him dead than alive. And he knew his fate. And yet he says, none of that moves me. What moves me is the love of Christ. You say, what does that mean? When I think of the love of Christ, I think of his love for me. And I believe the Apostle Paul wasn't saying at that point necessarily, although we'll get to it, he wasn't just saying it's my love for Christ that's causing me to go over there to Jerusalem and put my head on a chopping block, so to speak, to put my life, my limb in danger, to put myself within the bounds and context of a nation that hates Christ and put myself in their hands hands and beg their mercy. No, I'm not worried about that. I'm going simply... Because of his love for me. And I think the Apostle Paul looked back in his life. And he remembered that Damascus Road. And he remembered what God did for him there. He remembered how God met his needs. He remembered how God came down and saved his soul. He remembered how he was a sinner. He was lost and headed to hell. And yet God saved his soul. That's what he remembered. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the love of Christ. That he would die for you. That he would give his best for you. That he would leave heaven for you. That he would suffer, bleed, and die for you. That's his love for you. And that's his love for me. Paul, why are you going to go to Jerusalem and die potentially? What motivates you? What boosts you to give your life for him? His love for me. Because he loves me so much. Because of what he did for me. Look, would you please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul says, I don't care what they got in store for me in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter. I just know how much he loves me. I know how much he's already done for me. I know I'd be nothing without him. Because of everything he's done for me and how he loves me. Now I love him. We love him because he first loved us. Look, if you would now, 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, but by the way, this isn't Paul being haughty. Watch what takes place here now. He's trying to, he's expressing his credentials at this point. He's laying a foundation that says, listen, my life has been totally and completely yielded to Christ no matter what. Watch this. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In, min- in labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea. Perils, let's just make it simple, troubles. In perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watching often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without. That which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul saying, you know what keeps me going? Yeah, thank you. You know what keeps me going? You you know why I still keep serving the Lord? You know why I don't turn back to the world? You know why I don't go back down that road into my old life again? You want to know why I still remain pure and holy and separated from this present wicked world? You want to know why I still serve Jesus Christ? You want to know why even though I'm in perils of the sea, I'm perils of countrymen, in perils of this and perils of that, you want to know why I still do what I do? The love of Christ. Every time I want to quit, every time I want to sit down and relax, every time I want to give up and, and, and just go hide somewhere, every time I want to put the tracks away and not pass them out, every time I want to just stay home from soul winning, every time I want to decide, I'm not, I, I, I don't like teaching sometimes. It's getting difficult. Some of the kids don't listen to me like they used to. I don't know if I want to keep doing this. It's not easy. It's not fun. Nobody's patting me on the back. Nobody's telling me I'm doing a good job. I'm just out here all by myself on an island serving Jesus Christ. I feel like quitting, but I won't. Because of his love for me. Every time I think about it, I think about what he did for me. I think about how he died for me. How he suffered, bled. How he was buried and he rose again. How he took me, although I'm a wretched sinner. And he said, I'll forgive you and save you if you'll just call on me and receive me unto yourself. And I think about his mercy and his grace in my life. And I just say, you know what? Bring it on, Satan. I'm going to keep going for God. And I'm not going to quit. And I'm not turning back now. The love of Christ constraineth us, he said. And because he loves me like that, I love him. And I'm not going to turn tail and run now. 
I'm not going to leave him now. I'm not going to get away from him now. I'm not going to reject him now. I'm not going to forget about him now. Not after his love for me. Because now I love him like nobody's business. I think of Hudson Taylor who went to China. Hudson Taylor went there when it wasn't real popular to go to China. He went there before there were a bunch of churches that wanted to support missionaries to China. He went there before there were a lot of good roads and before there was any kind of, you know, air conditioning and before there was any, uh, you know, cars and things like that. Hudson Taylor, I, I, he went there to China. He went there when it was very primitive and very difficult and where people would die if they didn't align themselves with the beliefs of their systems. And yet Hudson Taylor went there, and Hudson Taylor endured hardship like most of us will never even imagine. He lost wives, plural. He lost children, plural. Hudson Taylor lost his family over and over again. Hudson Taylor saw them sick and ultimately die. He himself continued to live, and he kept ministering, and he kept serving, and he kept going for God. He wouldn't quit. He wouldn't give up. He wouldn't turn ta tail and run. He stayed there in China until God did a miracle in his life and in his ministry and won thousands and thousands to Jesus Christ. And you want to know why? For the love of Christ. Because Hudson Taylor couldn't get out of his mind what Jesus had done for him. He couldn't forget about how he suffered, bled, and died. How he left the throne of glory to come to this earth and live among the wretched sinfulness and wickedness of this world. And yet he lived a sinless, perfect life in his stead. And there he died on Calvary. And he paid his sin debt in full. And he said, I can't quit on God after everything God's done for me. Think about Jim Elliott, missionary to the Alka Indians. He and a team of men went there to reach an unreached people. They took passes in a missionary airplane over the little village of the Alka Indians. It took them a long time to even find them. They found them. They started dropping little presents or things they thought would say, we're friends. We're friends. We're friends. And after doing that for some time, they made up their minds to leave their wives and their families behind and to take a flight into the wilderness and ultimately land at that site. Boy, they landed and they came into contact with an Alka Indian. Boy, was it exciting. It seemed like things were looking up and they met a few others and there were pictures taken and there were some things done and, and, and they seemed to be getting along so well. But these were headhunters. They knew that going in. They already knew that their lives were at risk. They understood the potential consequences of their decision. But they went anyway. Oh, their wives knew too, but their wives also were spiritual and godly and said, honey, this is what God wants. That's the best thing. You go. 
Oh, they had prayed and begged God to give them the Alka Indians, to enable them to lead them to Christ and ultimately change those people and get them to turn from idols to the living God, to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, toward the Lord Jesus Christ. After just a short time, they were there a few nights. No one could reach them. No one heard anything from them for a period of time. Panic set in and fear struck the hearts of their families. When they did finally take a pass over the village in another plane, they saw the dead bodies of these missionaries. Jim Elliott being one of them. Here's the thing, though. and That's not where the story ends. Mrs. Elliot was equally as godly. Mrs. Elliot loved the Lord Jesus Christ because he loved her. She didn't get bitter at God because he had taken her husband. She didn't get angry because she had to raise her children on her own. She didn't get upset because at some point she would likely remarry and ultimately go forward with another man. No, she didn't get upset about that. She didn't say, my husband lived for Jesus. My husband gave his best. My husband gave his all. And you took his life, God. If that's a God that loves me, you don't love me at all. She didn't say that. All she could do is look back at the cross. All she could do is see the blood that was shed on her behalf. The God who left glory and hung on Calvary on her behalf and ultimately extended an invitation to her to come to him and be saved. And she said, oh, the love of Christ constraineth me. The love of Christ constraineth me. I love Jesus now because he first loved me. And I'm not quitting on him just because my husband died doing his service. I'm going to do his service. And you know where she ended up? History tells us she led the man to Christ who killed her husband. And she ended up living with the Alka Indians and reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of these things move me, Mrs. Elliot said. A fear for my life, a fear that my children will not have a mama. The fact that God has taken my husband already, the truth that who knows what the future holds, none of these things move me. All that moves me is his love for me, and now I have a love for him. I'm not quitting now. I'm not giving up now. I'm going to keep going for God. What moves you? What moves you today? What moves me? What constrains you? What constrains me? Does fear motivate me? Is it fear of my future? Is it fear of my finances? Is it fear of, of my family? What is it that's controlling me? What is it that's moving me? What's moving you? Paul said, none of these things move me. What moves me, 
what motivates me, what even constrains me is the love of Jesus Christ. We love him because he first loved us. See, when you feel like quitting, you need to go back and look at him on Calvary, dying in your stead, paying for your sin. When you feel like quitting and giving up, you need to go back to Calvary and recognize a Savior who not only died for you, but rose again so that you could live forever. The next time you feel like quitting, giving up, or backing down, Next time I do, we need to remember a God who loved us enough to send the Holy Spirit of God to indwell us, the comforter, to bring us peace in the midst of trial, to meet our every need along life's journey. The love of Christ ought to constrain you now. And will it be a paycheck? Will it be a position? Will it be prominence or preeminence? What is it that's going to move you? What's going to constrain you? Or will you always look to the cross? Will you always do what's right for Jesus and give him your all? These men and these women said, everything I am and everything I'll be is up to you. It's yours, Jesus. You take it all. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You want to know why it's reasonable? Because of the love of Christ. How selfish we are. How self-centered. How egotistical how arrogant and prideful we are. Oh God, you let that happen to me. I thought you were supposed to be a God that loved me. I thought you were supposed to be a God that cared. Nobody that cared would let that happen to me. Obviously, it's not the love of Christ moving you now or constraining you. It's self-pity. May I just say to you today that there's a God in heaven that loves you. He didn't just love you the day he died on Calvary. He loves you today. And although things may not always turn out the way you and I would like them to, I promise you this, he hasn't forsaken us. Maybe today you don't even know his love. Oh, you've heard about it, but you've never received and accepted it. You, you like those Ephesians, are, you're looking at the world and your works. You're trying to somehow earn your way. You're somehow trying to please God through your efforts. May I say that's not how it gets done. You need to repent of your sin, and you need to turn toward Jesus Christ, and you need to say, I can't get there following the world, and I can't get there doing good works. The only one that's going to get me there is Jesus, and I turn to him now, and I receive and accept him now, and I live for him now. I give him my all. Today, you need to give your all to him today. Every last ounce of your being. And why I need to give him every last ounce of my being. 
It's time we quit playing games. It's time we understand that our families, our friends, our neighbors, our country, our world needs a people who understand the love of Christ and who are motivated and moved by it. How much do you love him today? The amount you love God is dependent on how much you believe he loves you. See, it's the love of Christ that constrained the Apostle Paul. It was his love toward him. Jesus' love for him that enabled him to endure all those hardships and ultimately fulfill his calling. What's God's calling for your life, young man? What's what's moving you today? Is it the love of Christ and your love for him that motivates and moves you? Or is it a girl? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it a 401k down the road for retirement so you can retire at 49? I mean, what's motivating you? What's moving you today? Moms and dads, what's motivating and moving you? I promise your children will follow step. It's time that we as believers, like the Apostle Paul, simply say, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. That's what moves me. His love for me. Can I tell you that your love may wax and wane? But his love never changes. You'll love God more today than you do tomorrow, maybe. And then the next day you'll love him less than you did the day before. And then you'll love him more the next day. It could go up and down some because we're emotional creatures. But his love is always consistent. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, It's his love for me that constrains me. It's his love for me that moves me. Will you let his love move you today? What moves you today? I think there's a lot of folks that need to come to an altar today and say, it's time for me to give up what I believe is my own life. Because of what he's done for me, he deserves my all. Let's just quit giving him pieces and parts of our life. Let's give it all to him. And if you're lost today and you've never received Christ, you've never turned toward Jesus and trusted and received him as Savior, you better settle that today. My friend, there is nothing good that awaits you. Matter of fact, the Bible calls it a place called hell. It ultimately calls it in the book of Revelation, a lake of fire. It's not because God doesn't love you that you end up there. It's because you reject his love for you. You need to accept him, receive him today. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for your goodness in our life. And we thank you for the examples of godly men and women through the years that have shown us how it is that we can endure, how we can remain faithful even to the end. Father, I pray, dear God, that you just bless now the people of God. May our hearts not be so cold and hard that we somehow convince ourselves that we are truly Because the fact is, none of us are. What moves us, Lord? May you reveal that to us. May you speak to every person in every seat today. 
and point out what moves them the most? Is it just their children that move them the most? Is it their husband or wife? Is it their job? Is it their career? Is it their hopes and dreams? Or is it truly you that moves them most? Your love for them that constrains them. Father, we need your help. We ask for your leadership. We'll thank you. We'll praise you for what will be accomplished today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I wonder, how's your Bible reading? Well, I love the Lord. I just can't read my Bible. Friend, you need to quit thinking about your love for Him and start thinking about His love for you. And then the next time you don't want to read your Bible, you need to think about how much He loved you and how much He still loves you. How's your prayer life? 